This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. Before we get started, I want to mention that this episode of The Nod contains mentions of suicide and serious mental health issues and may not be suitable for all of our listeners. So if you feel that this episode may not be for you, it's all good. We will see you next week. Take care. From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod, a podcast about Black culture from Blackness's biggest fans. I'm Brittany Luce. I'm going to tell you guys a story that's kind of personal, so bear with me because this is kind of hard. About a year ago, I was talking to my therapist, and I was telling her some story about my life that week. And she interrupted me with a question. Do you think you might be depressed? And I kind of thought that it was like a bullshit therapist question, (laughs) just being real. You know, also, like, I was doing great in life. I had a great job, great partner, great family and friends. You know, I had my days like everybody— But I was fine. I was fine. A couple weeks later, I was at home chilling until it was time to meet some friends for dinner. It was kind of a rainy day, and to be honest, I wasn't really feeling it. As it got closer to dinner time, I got more and more anxious about leaving the house. It was like my body was rejecting the idea of me leaving my apartment to talk with anyone. And this was a hangout that I had organized. I invited everyone. I picked the restaurant, the date, and the time. This was supposed to feel like a party, but it felt like a punishment. And then I started crying, and I could not stop. I cried in the shower. I cried when I patted on my eye cream. I cried when I put on each leg of my jeans and when I fixed my hair. I mean, I was crying, crying. My boyfriend was sitting on the edge of the bed, looking at me the whole time, wondering what the hell was wrong with me. But I told him I was fine. And all the crying slowed me down so much, I had to take a cab if I was going to even make it to dinner. So I called a car, and I kept on crying for the entire ride to the restaurant. I could tell that I was freaking the driver out, but I didn't feel like I could make myself stop. I ended up getting to the restaurant before the rest of my friends, and I was able to take a minute to collect myself. And then I spent the next two and a half hours acting like I was nothing less than perfectly fine. Fine. I ended up having a good time that night, and I I guess I just put all of the crying and carrying on out of my mind, at least for a little while. It was just one bad night. But a few days later, the tears came back. I was trying to get ready for work, and I sat on my bed for a minute to comfort myself and take a few deep breaths. And in that moment, I realized that I've been doing that a lot lately. Crying and then dragging myself out of the house to go literally anywhere. I did it when I was going to meet up with my sisters for a little family time. And when I got a drink with a friend visiting from out of town. And that summer, I sat and cried for an hour before I met some friends at the beach. And then I thought about that bullshit therapist question. Do you think you might be depressed? And back then I said no. 
But I, I wasn't being dishonest. I was just so used to keeping up this front. I'm fine. Fine. I didn't know any other way to be. When I said I was fine, even when I really, really wasn't, I told my therapist exactly what I believed to be true. And when I saw the title of this new book by Bossy Ikpe, it hit me so hard. It's called, I'm Telling the Truth, But I'm Lying. That's what I'd been doing, telling the truth but lying. Bossy's book is the most honest book about mental illness that I've ever read, and I knew I had to have her on the show. It made me understand myself more and why I felt I had to say I'm fine when I wasn't. Bossy is primarily a writer now, but in a past life, she was one of the standout acts of Deaf Poetry Jam. Have you dug the spill of sugar Deaf Poetry Jam was basically a cultural institution in the 2000s. Some of the most respected names in hip-hop put their resources behind elevating poetry. And Bossy was right in the middle of the spotlight. Sometimes silence is the loudest kind of noise, like... Sometimes it was best when girls were girls and boys were boys, like back when freeze tag was a mating dance, like back when do-over meant you got another chance, like back when anxiety was worrying if Wonder Woman would make it out alive, like... On stage, Bossy was this confident artist, the picture of a cool early 2000s Black girl. But off stage, she wasn't that different from me. Sometimes depression hit her so hard she couldn't eat or sleep or leave the house. Things eventually became so unmanageable that Bossy couldn't hold it together anymore, and she had to leave Deaf Poetry Jam. She tells the story of that time in her life through the essays in her book. And I have to say, this book feels like she's telling her story from the inside out. Lying is how I survived this. Parceling truth is the way I avoid a descent into stronger and more damaging darknesses. It's why I can still walk through this world vacillating between existing and not existing. It's how I turn off the part of my brain that needs to rest and let the other part take over. When I return, I lie and pretend I've been there the whole time. I say things like, I forgot, or I couldn't find it, or... I was just kidding. Or I lie to control the narrative, deliver a well-packaged answer or joke before a question can even be posed. By far, the lie I tell the most is, I'm okay. Bossy's just like a lot of Black girls and women I know. Even when she's struggling, she puts on a brave face. It's a survival tactic. One she learned when she was really young. When was the first time you remember lying or projecting a happy or composed outside appearance while kind of denying how you really felt inside? Um, when I was still in Nigeria, um, before we moved to the States, and my, my mother was away at nursing school mm-hmm. in Nigeria, but my dad was in the United States, and so I, I lived with cousins and aunties and you know um i i've i've rewritten it to 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 say that i lived with my grandmother but i've i've since learned that that i didn't really live with her i was just around her mm. um and uh i remember being so sad when 
my parents would visit, but I, I realized that if I looked a little too sad, it would make other people sad. And so I would mm. immediately correct myself. I would immediately, you know, laugh or or, or smile or do something funny, you know, um, because I saw that people, not that they weren't interested, but they were they were more immediately <laughs> um, receptive to me being a happy kid mm. as opposed to me feeling sad that where is everybody? How come, you know, these people keep coming and going. Um, so as as far back as I can remember, and I would say about two or three years old. When did you notice that you were different? I've always known that that there was something going on with me. There were things that I felt like, okay, everyone is upset about this, but I'm like upset, upset about this. And I'm not able to shake it off the way that other people are. I kept extensive journals. Mm-hmm. Um for a long time, and but I used to throw them away because I didn't want my mom to find them. Yeah. Um, but when I was in college and I lived in the dorm, I was keeping these very extensive like journals. And and I when I was started to write the book, I was like, oh, those journals, I, I I can you know go and use them as reference. And I went to find them, and I realized that I had used whiteout and whole sections and written over them. I was dedicated to making things better than they were in my memory. Um, Dedicated in ways that I was unaware of. Because, I I mean, I know I was doing it because I did it, but I didn't realize whatever it was that I was trying to cover up. But I, I, I understand now that that's something that I've always done in one way, shape, or form. Hmm. I became familiar with you from your writing and your mental health advocacy work. But before all that, you were a really successful poet. And um, some people might remember you and your work from the popular HBO Deaf Poetry Jam series. And something that I noticed in reading the book, but also I felt (laughs) and feel myself sometimes, is that the contrast here was so stark. You know, there's you as this traveling, performing artist who's kind of like in a certain sense, not just living her dream, but a lot of people's dreams. And you're also this person who's kind of struggling with brain fog and mania and trying, you know, who's struggling to eat and sleep. Um, And I want to talk more about sort of that contrast, that sort of outside versus inside. What were some things that you loved about that time in your life, like when you were traveling with the show? Um, I loved performing at a, at a, at a time. Um, I could be devastated and crying and up all night, but as soon as I got on that stage, I I knew what I was doing there. I made sense on stage. Mm-hmm. I loved, and this is you know superficial, but I really enjoyed the money. <laughs> I enjoyed being able to pay my bills. <laughs> I loved performing. Um, I loved being able to stand on stage and things that I wrote and and watch people like react to it and like sigh or you know just you know acknowledge that they they were feeling and hearing what I was saying in that very specific spoken word way. <laughs> um, <laughs> I loved that. It made me feel. Um, uh, it made me feel like a person who was allowed to exist, which is not something that I felt mm. often. What does that mean, the person who's allowed to exist? Can you talk about that a little bit more? I felt purposeful. Um, I felt like if I didn't make it to a show, someone would notice, mm. right? Um, I felt like I was able to 
ground myself in other people, which is dangerous and not something that, you know, I recommend at all. So you were traveling and touring pretty much all the time. Like, how did that affect you? Uh, it it broke me in a lot of ways. Um, I didn't really have any time off, and um, it made it very difficult to turn off. I have been performing in, in one way or the other my entire life. So the inability to turn that off mm. and, and, and get out of my head and just rest for a little bit, mm. um, once I started losing that, that's when, when it, it, it got really bad. It's interesting that you bring that up because when reading this book, I couldn't help but think about the bind that a lot of Black women living with mental illness sort of like find themselves in, myself included. Um, where a lot of times, like, our families, our friends, our coworkers, you know, they feel like they need us to be their backbone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we might even feel, if not we're explicitly told, that, you know, people cannot afford to have us break down on them. And it doesn't give you a lot of room for your true feelings. And, and, and I find that it can make, you know, it can make you feel like you're not being seen, even by the people who are the closest to you. Still, for all the moments where that happens, um, there are also moments in the book where people would flat out, well-meaning, directly ask you, Bossy, are you okay? And you wouldn't open up. And there was one specific moment that really got me. uh, And it was from when you were on tour with Deaf Poetry. And so before the show one night, you have this private moment with the stage manager, an older Black woman named Alice. Basically, in that moment, Alice asks you if you're okay. And in that moment, you say, oh, I just had a breakup. And then, you know, when you're reflecting on that moment, you write, broken hearts are easier to explain. How do you tell someone that your brain is broken? What were you afraid would happen if you did tell someone that your brain was broken? Um, I was afraid of... In the book, I do mention um, the fear of Billie Holiday in uh, Lady Sings the Blues Mm -hmm. in the uh, asylum. That was something that was in my head a lot. I only saw that movie once because that scene scared me so much. Um, And and I read the book, too. Mm -hmm. But that, those scenes really scared me. And I was afraid that I would be put away. I was afraid that I'd be thrown away. I was afraid that... um, I would ruin my life in ways that were irreparable. Um, I was afraid of being labeled. I was afraid of seeming ungrateful for the things that I that I had. Um, I was also at that moment because I, I I admired and loved Alice so much. I didn't want her to be so afraid for me that she wouldn't be able to see me anymore. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be a broken person. I didn't want that to be the thing that labeled me so that even when I was okay, whenever somebody looked at me, they would know that 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 I wasn't. I didn't want that. I wanted to fight for that for that for that little bit of fine <laughs> that I could that I could hold on to. 5:43 p.m. My bedroom is exactly as I left it, a complete mess. Between books and half-filled journals, there is also an avalanche of clothes on the floor and overflowing from the dresser. My closet is overstuffed. The clothes still on the closet rod are hanging on for dear life. I really should treat my things better. 
5.44 p.m. I'm reaching to pick up a stray t-shirt when I see the laptop, sleek and silver, sitting abandoned and angry on my nightstand, a sock draped mockingly over it. This is my most prized possession. My first major purchase. Well, sort of. At the last minute, I had to put it on my roommate's credit card. But with this job, I paid her back in a week. 5.45 p.m. The realization hits that this job bought most of the new and expensive things scattered around the room. I don't have to worry about bills or rent or my out-of-control eBay habit because of this job. This job that I'm so lucky to have. This job that I'm constantly reminded not to take for granted. This job that people would die for. I'm waiting for it to kill me. So shortly after, you know, you have this moment with Alice in Atlanta, it seems like you lost the capability to project any kind of okayness on the outside. Um, You end up having a breakdown in Chicago. Can you talk to me about, about what happened in Chicago? Well, it started when I was in the hotel room, and I was crying on the floor, and I got up when the alarm rang because I had to go backstage. I had to go to the theater. The theater was a couple of blocks from the hotel. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking and feeling like I just didn't want to be there. And And at the time, there meant in Chicago, you know, at the tour. But now, um, there meant alive. And I got backstage and I'm, you know, doing my makeup and trying to focus on, on the performance and trying to calm myself down. All I needed was you know, to to get my makeup done, to get my clothes, to get everything set up, to get backstage, to get on stage, and I'd be fine. That's what I was counting on. And that night, um, my clothes weren't backstage. So that that stopped the momentum that I had, that little bit of space that I had to be okay. I didn't have that. There was a bump in the road. Um, I'd also lost or couldn't find some random lipstick that I was looking mm-hmm. for that I wanted to wear and not being able to find that. Like all these these little guideposts and and things that I'd set up just completely fell apart. And once I didn't have those things anymore, I fell apart. And I did all I could. I, I remember jumping up and down and, and doing these, you know, dance turns and anything to get whatever was in me out. Uh, because I was also in a manic, I was having a mixed episode, what I know now to be a mixed episode, mm-hmm. where I was um, both depressed and hypomanic at the exact same time, which is one of the most physically uncomfortable feelings in the world. And at some point, um, and I'm trying to place the memory now. I don't know whether something rolled underneath the sink or what it was. I, you know, I think it was the tight space um, because I felt like I was... I was exploding in ways and taking up all this room and I needed something to sort of hold me. And Alice crawled in underneath with me and just kind of pulled me into her lap and and gave me this. And I'll never forget this. Oh, God, I'm going to cry. Mm. <laughs> um, but I'll never forget the way that she held me because it was this way that I don't think I had remembered being held um, non-sexually non uh you know just not just a quick hug and then a, a, a backup it was it was it was full bodied and 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 all encompassing and it felt like she was trying to give me her her life her energy her strength it was that that loving and that um powerful this is somebody who 
who was so scared for me, and I saw it in her face. It wasn't just me being scared for me. It, it, it was a full panic that she had that made me scared. Like, holy crap, is it that bad? You know, have, have I gotten that bad, mm. you know? Um, so after, you know, you have this breakdown, um, it sounds like, and it seems like that's kind of like, at least within the sequence of the book, that's what you're pushed to seek help from a doctor. And you yeah. end up finally receiving a diagnosis of bipolar 2. Um, what did it feel like to have a name to call what was going on? It was at once a huge relief and then a new fear. Um, it had a name, which meant that someone could see it too. As he was reading the symptoms, I was everything I could check off. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. And it felt good to have somebody validate these things that I had gone through, the things that I had done. Um, but I didn't want that. This is the very last thing that I wanted. Once, as soon as I heard it and felt that relief, I got a new fear that showed up in its place. Mm. What do you mean when you say a new fear? What was the fear? The fear of, again, of being labeled. Um, it was okay to be broken just for myself. But if people had, if people had a reason to throw me away, I, I didn't want them to have that. That was always mm. a, a fear of, of, of being just discarded because I wasn't useful anymore. That was, that was tough. Bossy, like so many of us, worked so hard to hide her brokenness. She thought if she wasn't useful, she didn't have any worth. It took a long time for Bossy to learn how to live with her brokenness by letting other people in. Bossy opens up after the break. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. In Union Square, Manhattan, the buildings curved into themselves like a dolly mistake. I was walking in circles, literally, down 14th, left at University, no, right, down to a left at 13th, left and then another left and back on 14th. I circled the block at least six times, walking a different way each time, hoping I wouldn't raise suspicion from anybody who happened to be glancing out their high-rise windows. The circling was calming predictable. I counted my steps around each block and then multiplied that by how many times I'd gone around to calculate how many steps I've taken total. I needed to keep my brain busy. I was concentrating so hard on my steps that I didn't hear my name being called until a hand grabbed my shoulder. My heart dropped, the familiar swirl and dip of an anxiety attack hitting me as I closed my eyes. 
I opened them slowly, hoping I was steady. It was Diane, a friend I'd known since she was a teenager in the New York poetry community. It was embarrassing to have anyone I knew see me like this, jeans falling off my hips, my jacket unzipped and hanging open. You okay, boss? She asked, studying my face for more clues. Had I been staring at her? I didn't trust my voice, so I nodded. Where you headed? I shrugged, then took a breath that caught in my throat so that my exhale sounded like a choking. My eyes immediately filled, and Diane wrapped her arms around me. What's wrong, she asked, half hugging me, half holding me up. What's wrong? My response was lost somewhere between my throat and the world, and she led me into the restaurant we were standing in front of. I sat beside her quietly with my eyes on the world outside the window. Diane ordered the pad thai, then looked at me. You want anything? I shook my head and whispered, no. The silence that followed my answer shamed me into looking back down at my hands. When was the last time you ate? Monday, I said. It's Thursday. I know. I didn't know. You end up in this position where you see Diane. Yeah. And Diane notices there's something wrong, and you go your separate ways. And then Diane shows up at your apartment the next day, and your doctor tells her to check you into a hospital. Yeah, the next morning. And you're hospitalized. You you end up in the psych ward of, of a local hospital. The one place I never wanted to be. <laughs> Why was it the one place you never wanted to be? Um, it, it, it just was, again, more proof that there was, that I was broken and possibly irreparable. Um, uh, that, that scene from Lady Sings the Blues, I didn't want that. And, and there I was. I felt, not that I didn't belong because I was better than the people who mm-hmm. were there, but it didn't seem as bad. So I felt like I was taking up space in that way, mm. too. Like there were people who really needed to be there and I just needed to get my shit together and I couldn't. Mm. What was the moment where you felt like you could really be honest with yourself about why you were there? Like, at what point did you stop lying? There was a another patient there named Trevor who had come from Ireland to, to uh, commit suicide in New York. Mm. And he had jumped in front of a train and lost one of his legs, and he had been there for weeks— and he, the moment I got there, he got on my nerves because he was so damn happy and, you know, chatting with people and jokes and, and all these different things. And he, I was, I get resentful of him and his ability to be okay in the space that was telling us that we weren't okay. And one night um, we had a conversation and I just confronted him like, why are you, why are you here? Why are you so happy and chipper and and joking and and we're all crazy in here and you seem to think that you're you know hosting a brunch <laughs> and um he told me his story and for a moment I felt bad because well I didn't jump over you know jump in front of a train so why am I here mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean like turn the tables on to me like why am I here I'm not that you know I didn't do that um but when he said imagine you feeling blah, 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 and then ending up more fucked up than you started. And I remember like, holy crap, like, yes, 
And he asked me what I was doing there. And I said, I wanted, I think I said I wanted to die, but my body wouldn't let me. And and he wanted to die and did something about it. Whereas I was slowly trying to do it and not eating and 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 taking you know, sleeping pills. I didn't take eight pills at once. Mm -hmm. I took one every couple of hours because I wanted to sleep. That's what I was telling myself. And I did want to sleep, but I also didn't want to wake up. But these are not things I didn't allow myself to continue the thoughts. I didn't want to do this. And then the dot, 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 the ellipsis would be like, because I want to die, because I don't want to live, because I don't want to wake mm -hmm. up. But I would never let myself go past those, those dot, dot, mm -hmm. dots. Um, and he was very, very clear about what he wanted to do and why he did it. And he bought a ticket. He came to the United States. He found it. Like, he did all of that. And my body was still trying to fight to keep me here and to see him, the physical embodiment of what that means. Hmm. Um, it just it just did something to me. And the very next day is when I started to try. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to die. I was very clear about that. But I had to figure out how to be okay being alive. Hmm. It, it seems like in that conversation with your fellow patient, you, you were finally able to state with clarity that you weren't okay. You know, that, that your insides and outsides were basically so far apart, like they might as well have been perfect strangers. Yeah. But, but you were also able to communicate how you weren't okay. And it seems like that was the moment that things really shifted for you. Yeah, it did. Yeah, obviously, there's a whole journey in between your hospitalization and us talking today. Mm -hmm. It seems like there are, you know, two major steps that you had to take to get to this point of real transparency between, you know, your inside emotional state and how you express mm -hmm. those emotions on the outside. It seems like the first one is accepting that you're not okay. And we've talked a lot about that today. But the other one seems to be expressing to others that you aren't okay. So what's the value of letting people in for you? Um, it removes the ability to lie to myself and to others. Um, I'm also, I'm very careful though. I think that I'm not just out here just dumping my, my stuff on people. Um, I, I've made it so that I have to be the one who says, this is what I need. I had to teach myself to be able to articulate what I need or just to say, I don't know what I need, but I know that something needs to happen. And that is, a, is an alert to the people in my life. And that doesn't mean, you know, all of Twitter all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, it means having those core people and having, um, you know, doing the work yourself to meet them halfway. You can't just stay in the corner. I can't just stay in a corner and wait for people to find me anymore. Um, I've learned to take the steps towards people and just ask them to meet me where I am um, as opposed to what I wanted before, I think, which is to find people to dig me out and then carry me around for a little bit or something. I don't know. Hmm. I have one more question for you. At the beginning of your book, you posit lying as the survival tactic that worked best for you in the past. What is your go-to survival tactic now? Oh, gosh. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, thinking. My go-to survival tactic. You know, I don't feel like... I don't feel like I'm surviving. I feel like I'm living. I feel like, for the first time, I'm thriving. I feel... I feel... Um, 
like there's a future ahead of me and I am walking towards it and I am looking forward to what that is. I've been so afraid of the future for so long, um, for most of my life, if not all of my mm-hmm. life. I've I've been afraid of the future. I didn't know what it looked like. I didn't know what I would look like in it. And and to have to be in a place now where I'm making plans for a year from now and I'm making plans for two years and three and four mm-hmm. and and being able to be comfortable knowing that those two and three and four years are actually gonna come, um, God willing, inshallah. Uh but yeah, I I, I don't think of my life as a sprint towards survival. Um, I'm quoting myself, but I, I don't see that anymore. I see my my life as a steady rollout, and I'm just taking it every step of the way, um, and 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 acknowledging and being mindful of every single step. Bossy, thank you so much. Thank you. This was a great conversation. Um, it really forced me to like think about things. <laughs> like, wait a minute, I'm not giving you stock answers. What's happening? <laughs> Bossy Ikpi's new book is called I'm Telling the Truth, But I'm Lying, and it's out now. If you couldn't already tell, I highly recommend it. The Nod is produced by me, Brittany Luce, with Eric Eddings, Kay Parkinson Morgan, and Wallace Mack. Our senior producer is Sada Abdurrahman. We are edited by Sarah Saracen. The show is mixed by Cedric Wilson. Our theme music is by Khalid B. Additional music in this episode by Cedric Wilson. <laughs>